couple years ago, news came out of Pastor Joshua Harris leaving Christianity and then divorcing his wife. Harris, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, was kind of the, the darling of homeschool evangelicals uh, for his rejection of a secular view of sexuality. Um, now, he lauds a um, deconstruction of his faith. Uh, I don't know all the reasons why he has done this, and it would really be unfair to delve into all of that. I don't know the man. Um, I'm sure he's got a lot of hurts and a lot of things that went on, but I, I'm not going to get into that. But what I'm curious about is how he has ended up. He has now embraced an approach of a secular view of sexual ethics. Now, I know that by reading his words. This is not surmise. This is not guess. This is not me judging him. These are his own words. And what I mean by a secular view is that each person, individual, independently makes their choice in sexuality in regards to partners and sexual identity. God is not the authority in such matters with a secular view. As my own authority, no one has the right to comment unless it is approval or celebration. Whatever the choice, it is celebrated because the individual is autonomous in a secular view. And this view has become a torrent that rages against a biblical worldview that claims that God not only has a say in the matter, but he should have the authority because he has revealed that to us in the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ. So what we see happening in Harris and in others is a conversion of sorts. Perhaps we should call it a deconversion. He has deconverted from theistic Christianity. He himself says, I have left Christianity, all right? And is now embracing more of a deism. Those are my words. Now, theism makes a claim that God has uh, revealed to us specific propositions about himself in the Bible and through the person of Jesus. Deism is an idea that God created the world and basically has just gone on the back porch and had a good smoke and never had anything else to do with the world after that. Okay? Uh, there's no communication. There's no revelation. It's just God in the world and never shall the twain meet. All right? Now, what intrigues me is the connection of people deconverting from Christianity and at the same time embracing a sexual ethic that puts each person as the ultimate authority. Okay, there is a relationship here. This is what I want to affirm with you. Now, the Bible lets us know that people have a moral choice. Of course they do. They're made in the image of God. Every person has a moral choice in these things. However, having a choice does not guarantee the rightness or goodness or quality of your choice. Okay, there is a deep connection with the sexual ethic we choose and the worldview that we adopt. 
Now, I can sit here and argue of which came first, the worldview or the ethic, the chicken or the egg or whatever. But for our sake today, let's just accept the notion that there's a relationship between the sexual ethic and the worldview. We good with that? All right. Let us recognize also that when it comes to a worldview, okay, that Jesus let us know that sometimes religion really gets it wrong. I want you to hear me here. These are not just my words, but Jesus, in fact, said that some religious teaching is destructive. Listen to his words in Mark 10, 22. Now, this attacks the idea, people say, you know, our religions are kind of the same, and we have this kind of gullible idea that we're all on equal footing. Every religion says the same thing. That's not Jesus. Because objective analysis of using the gospel and the Bible reveals there's a big difference between what Jesus and the Bible teaches and what other religions often teach. Christ said this. These are his words. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. In other words, God's own people will be torn with this false teaching that Jesus points to. Now, a person who knew Christ and followed him adds to it and says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, just like Jesus said, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Right, now, it's really about here that sometimes I'll get people that just leave. I'm not kidding, okay? Because these words strike a chord that is so anathema to today's progressive whatever you want to call it, that it's like, what? What kind of archaic notion is this coming from the Bible? I want you to notice several things. Notice that there are teachings that are destructive to one's faith and one's personhood. There are teachings that are out there that are destructive. In other words, they cause harm. Now, this is not a word of of, uh, condemnation, uh, but rather as a statement of fact, a reality, to warn people that there are consequences of rejecting God as our master, right? Now, he's not only master by virtue of being a part of the created order and creating a a universe with a moral order, and we, we fall under that, but he's also earned the title of master by being the, making an ultimate sacrifice in giving us his son, Now, today's Father's Day, and by the way, I don't think I said it, happy Father's Day to everybody, okay? (laughs) Happy Father's Day. 
Now, I love you all, but let me tell you one thing I will not ever plan on doing, and that is giving up one of my kids for you. <laughs> Who does that? Okay? I mean, I, that, that's just not in. I have this kind of mother bear quality. Somebody attacks my wife or my kids. Um, Katie bar the door. I, I kind of go, uh, you know, and sometimes I'm not really walking Christ when I do this. I'll admit it. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I remember. I remember a time a couple kids in the neighborhood beat the living daylights out of one of my kids, and he came home kind of bloodied and bruised. And I was about nine or ten, and I'm like, what the heck happened? And he told me, and I went down to the kid's house, and there was his dad in his pickup with his beer, and I had my finger in his face like this, <laughs> telling him, I don't want to ever see your kid in my yard. <laughs> oh, and by the way, here's a track about Jesus. <laughs> no, that part didn't happen. Uh, but I did point my finger at him. And he apologized. And his kid came down and apologized later, which I, uh, which I appreciated. Um, but um, I don't know why I told you all that, but uh, <laughs> I lost my point. So dads, don't get in fights. That's the point. All right? Don't be a jerk like I was. All right. Um, but I don't, I'm not going to sacrifice my son. I'm not going to sacrifice my wife. All right? I'm going to do everything I can to protect them. Right? That comes natural to us. But the idea that God would give his son for our sin we weren't asking for it. We weren't repenting. We weren't humble, admitting in our sin, he offered us his son. Amen. By virtue of that, it's as if Peter is saying, it's almost like he's writing these words and weeping. How could you turn your back on this kind of God? How would you spurn him being now one of his children? They are following, he's saying now, their own sexual impulses. And they crown them all as glorious as they reject God's instruction. They develop man-made worldviews that embrace their passions while rejecting God's rightful place. This is how truth is blasphemed. An exploitation takes place with false words. And this is religion. Religious institutions crowning people for every sexual exploitation and desire. And Peter's saying, don't be surprised at that. That's going to take place. The Apostle Paul warned this same sentiment when he said, for the time is coming when people will not endorse sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now listen, this is not, 
This is not reason for us to get nasty or jerky to other people. It's just the word of God saying, this is what is going to happen. This is what is happening. And so we're to have compassion and love, but still hold the line. Understand that we are in a moral universe that God has created, and he is our master. It's no surprise to us that people reject the Old Testament. They remake Jesus into some kind of Pillsbury doughboy, you know, who wouldn't hurt a flea. It's what people want. They desire to have their own views celebrated and approved. Thank you, Facebook and Instagram. Let me ask you this. Do you think our society is getting better at listening to counterpoints to people's views? Or are people getting more upset at each other? Yeah. Listen to me. When self is king and God takes a back seat, we don't want anyone riding with us who doesn't approve and celebrate of our every decision. It doesn't matter if I am ending my marriage, sleeping with someone not my spouse, changing my gender, buying as much as I can whenever I can, making a political statement, or even stating my opinion on the best barbecue, we have to all agree, or else you are not being tolerant of me, the all-merciful king self. Not all-merciful, all-knowing really would be the more accurate. At least that's the thought. And if you don't agree... You're going to get canceled. You're going to be ridiculed. Whenever this is in our spirit, the ridicule of other people, know that this is not, this is the flesh. This is not the spirit of God. Now, I see things in our culture I detest. I can't stand. But I I don't communicate that to the people. Right? That's not cool. So, Hopefully I have another chance to talk to that guy with the beer in his truck. See, Kevin, there was a zinger right there. If you think that the connection between sexuality and faith has not been clear, consider Jude 1.4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago have designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. More than once, I've talked to men and women in an affair who will say, God wants me to be happy. That is perverting the grace of God, using it to give ourselves an okay with our sin. Again, we reject the biblical mandates on sexuality and we reject Christ 
as our master and Lord. Now listen, sexuality is a strong force in our lives. And it can easily feel like an impossibility uh, to have this under control. My purpose here is not to condemn us for having those forces, but to affirm that we have a choice. Right? That God gives us a choice. That we live as children of the king, King Jesus. Or we live as individuals on our own. And I think our challenge here is to acknowledge God as our creator who outfits us to live in this world, to make those choices, to serve God in all areas with money, relationships, whatever, including sexuality, and that we can make the right and good choice, and he gives us the will and the power to do that in the person of Jesus. But to acquiesce, to embrace all forms and expressions of sexuality is like automatically giving an A in every class in high school. Who does that? I know when the, when the pandemic hit and with some of my college classes, I was instructed by the school that when the pandemic started, you had to give a kid no lower than the grade that they had when the pandemic started. So in other words, for, if a kid had a C, and for two months didn't hand in one assignment, didn't do anything, and maybe earned an F, I had to still give that student a C. That was hard for me to do. <laughs> All right. But I did it because that's what I was asked to do, and that was the school's, school's policy. And it wasn't just them. It was done. I talked to uh, some people even in, in other schools, and that was, that was the same thing. So... Um, But what I think that does, it actually takes away the importance of our responsibility and our choices, and and particularly when it's done in the area of morals, it treats humans like animals. You know why? Because they're to be pitied because they don't have, we treat them like they don't have any control over their impulses. They're just like an animal. But they're not. They're human beings. They do have a choice. But we treat them like they don't. Whatever the impulse is, i got to do it. Really? Are you that way in every other area of your life? Let's hope not. Right? So if you have an impulse and you want to steal from me in my house, you let me know beforehand if you feel that way. All right? I don't know whether to invite you over or not. Hosea is an Old Testament example of rejecting God's authority so that they could satisfy their own impulse. All right, Uh, we have some slides to read through it, but guys, I'm going to cut through that and just jump right to verse one. It says, rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You've loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. Now, some commentators think that the prostitution actually took place at the threshing floors. This is where grain was treated. Others think that what Hosea is saying is that Israel believed that by 
prostituting herself in worship of Baal, that Baal would bless her with more crops. In this case, the grain of the harvest was the fee Israel paid to keep worshiping Baal. So, you know, keep giving us a good harvest, we'll keep worshiping you, Baal, all right? Now, what we do know is that the physical prostitution served as an image of Israel worshiping a false god, an idol. While they were calling themselves God's people. So God is promising to close off the grain and the wine vat. The grapes and grain will become desolate to teach Israel a lesson. This is often done with people, right? Do you not ever go through a season in which God has maybe stopped some of the blessing to teach you a lesson, right? Uh, I think I've told this story before, but I remember when I was in my mid to early 20s and I had a job and I was making a lot of money and I was in a uh, my, one of the bosses, vice presidents of the company came up to me and said, hey, you're the next guy to get promoted. You're, you're going to get promoted. And it was a six-figure position. This was back in the late 80s, and that was a lot of money. And I said, I'm there, buddy. I'll do whatever. I'm just like a lab dog. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do whatever you want, okay? And then I'm sitting in the middle of um, Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, and my immediate boss says, oh, you're not going to get it. And I'm like, what? And I remember just this, you know, I was just despondent. It's like, what? But God had to take that away from me to show me how my heart was into that. I was trusting that. And I needed to pull away. Because God knew if I would have gotten that position, it would have been very difficult for me to go back into ministry. Um, God sometimes does that, is he applies pressure at that pressure point in our lives to teach us, and hopefully we'll be humble enough to hear. There's a rejoicing that took place that Hosea said needs to cease. Imagine that. God says, quit rejoicing. Quit your partying. Quit acting like everything is a-okay. Right? I mean, just like today, individuals wanting to be approved for every decision they make, regardless of their relationship with God, Israel is practicing this perverted rejoicing, worshiping idols, but still recognizing God in these festivals in all kinds of ways. Now, take note that this was in the area of having prosperity, then they assumed that they were okay with God. But having physical goods is not the guarantee that you and God are in cahoots, right? It's reminiscent of the rich fool in Luke 12 who thought prosperity was an undeniable mark of success. I mean, he's going to build new barns, accumulate all kinds of extra stuff with nary a thought of God's kingdom. We read about this in Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care 
and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? My garage isn't big enough. I got bigger vehicles to park in it, all right? Um, And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, others will they see. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God is not saying you can't be prosperous. He's saying it's when you're using it just for self. You're not thinking in terms of you being a servant of the king. I'm filtering it through. How can I use this for God's purposes? How can God be honored with this? Notice I is used six times. My is used five times with a self-gratifying you referring to himself thrown in for good measure. The man's whole life was inverted onto himself. And the voice of God interrupted his his self-congratulations. Fool, tonight you're going to die. Now what are you going to do with all that stuff? We're rich toward God when we utilize all that God has given us, including our relationships, our possessions, our time, all of it, to serve his kingdom. So a prayer should be, okay, God, you've given us, you've given me all this. You've given me this possession. You've given me this, these relationships, this influence. How can I use this for you and your kingdom? That's the prayer. That that young man never prayed. But we have a chance to do that. Not as independent people trying to usurp God's authority, but under him as servants of the king. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. The covenant relationship Israel had with God promised, gave them a promised land and that God would provide for them in this land. And to have God say that they would have to evacuate this land because of sin, imagine how devastating that would be. The land was God's, and he was responsible for providing everything that Israel needed in it. But instead, they looked to Baal. They worshiped a false god after God gave them all of this. You think, well, it wasn't God, you know, reneging on his promises? No. Here's what you need to look at. This is part of the original promise in Deuteronomy. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. God told them they had a responsibility 
to hold, to recognize his goodness, to look to him, not to look to other gods, or else there would be consequences. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Now remember, Israel's not in a repentant state here, right? They are continuing headlong into their sin. They feigned repentance, said the words of repentance, but they continued in their disobedience. Mourner's bread is explained in Numbers 19, where when somebody dies in your house or in your tent, everything becomes unclean, even the food. This is the law when someone dies in the tent. Everyone who comes into the tent, everyone who's in the tent, shall be unclean seven days, and every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. The point Hosea makes is that the offerings in the Assyrian exile are going to be contaminated. God's going to take away their ability to have this uh, feasting and recognition of these religious um, uh, ceremonies and to bless them because they're in the middle of idol worship. All this stuff that you're using with religious connotation, the only good it's going to do is fill your stomach. That's what he's saying. It has no religious value to me. Now imagine your worship being rejected by God, right? I mean, it'd be like Israel is like a boyfriend who writes a letter to his fiance, all right? A love letter. But he's been cavorting with other women in the process and she knows it. He's been unfaithful. Would she be glad to get the letters from an insincere Lying lover? God is not fooled by the insincerity. Not fooled by the hypocrisy. But let me be quick to add, this does not mean that we have to achieve perfection before serving or worshiping God. There are some of you, I know, because with a crowd this large, it just has to be the case. Some of you, they're saying, I can't serve. In fact, some think, I, I can't even worship God freely. Why? because you're replaying some episode in your life that you failed, or maybe a season of your life. Let me tell you, I've got got some of those. Well, how can I get up here? How can I preach knowing what I've done in the past? It's not because I'm perfect, but because I know that I'm washed, that grace covers me. It's because also I'm not trying to be something different than I am. You come up and you say to me, so how's your marriage? I'm going to be honest about that. Right now it's good. (laughs) But not always. Sometimes we'll bicker. Right? I know pastors shouldn't do that, but you don't have one of those that never does it. The point is, integrity is just being honest about where you're at. And God is looking for integrity. God is looking for integrity, not perfection. Integrity is being straight with God and others while serving and worshiping. So you just refuse to put up a front. And the fact is, none of us have all of our acts together. 
Let us just appreciate the forgiveness of God, be honest, and get on with the kingdom work. All right? So if you're there, not participating because of your past, it's time that you realize your sin is not bigger than God's forgiveness. He forgives you. And you need to be about serving, using your gift. All right? And then we have a list for new teachers we need in our Sunday school right after this service. <laughs> Just teasing. We don't. Verse 5. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silvers, silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. What was God to make of their regular festivals and feasts? They are a people headed to bondage. Memphis, the capital of Egypt at the time, was a famous burial place. It would be a foreign graveyard for God's people. Weeds and nettles, those are thistles, would overgrow on their silverware and thorns would be in their homes, in their tents. In other words, they would be uncomfortable in the ways that they previously sought protection and comfort, right down to their homes and eating together. The nice things they treasured in the promised land would no longer be available. The days of punishment have come the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on his ways. It is on all his ways. And hatred in the house of his God. So these consequences of Israel's disobedience, these are at hand. Hosea was a prophet sent to Israel to warn them about their sin, their rejection of God as their protector and provider. But to Israel, Hosea is a fool to believe that God would do what he was going to, what he was saying he was going to do, would hold them accountable. They hated Hosea for this. They called him a fool and a madman. You are crazy to believe that. Now, all of this was a distorted outlook of Israel. Why? Because they were in the midst of iniquity, right? So they were disgusted by God's messenger. And you often have churches You'll have churches that will embrace any or all sexual expressions, but they can't do that without first denying God's revelation. And they don't take it seriously. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I think in that case, you're wanting to please people, therefore, get rid of the word of God. Disgusted, though, by prophets. Hateful to those Name-calling to those who call people to an account before a holy God. But that was the job of Hosea, to be a watchman, 
to warn God's people when trouble loomed. Yet the warnings themselves are like a trap to Ephraim. They think they're smart, but they are a fool for rejecting God and proclaiming autonomy from him, just like people are doing today. That's our new idol, our independence and our autonomy. I am a God unto myself. Celebrate me, approve me, worship me. And the house of God has now become a place of hatred for God's messenger, God's message, and for God himself. What a turn of events. Jesus gave a warning to his disciples to be careful in this regard, that there are going to be people who fall into trouble because they want to be liked. And Jesus' warning was, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. See, sin obstructs our view of reality. It dulls our hearing. Such was the case of Joshua Harris and many other leaders and many other people. I say that not to condemn them. I say that with great sadness because of the number of people that will follow him and believe him. But they fit their views to fit their passions whether it's as a participant or as a purveyor of the worldview. And God and his truth are adjusted or denied to fit the passion. Verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Hold on to your horses here. Take the worst day you ever had as a human being. Worst thing you ever did as a human being, okay? I mean, you're ashamed of it. You, you don't want to ever talk about it. Worst thing you ever did. And then you have somebody close to you and says, you know, what you did today is worse than that. Now, that would really make you feel about an inch small, right? Well, this was the situation with Israel. And what Hosea is talking about is a situation in Gibeah out of Judges 19. I'm not going to read it. Just take my word for it. And I won't be able to get into all the details, but here, here's the nuts and bolts of it here, that a woman was gang raped by a group of men who initially wanted to get a guy, and then a guy threw out a woman to him, and she's gang raped to the point of, if I understand the text right, to the point of death, all right? Men hell-bent on sexual sin. To make matters even more atrocious, she was cut up into pieces and spread throughout Israel, right? Almost as if to remind people of how atrocious the rape was. And Hosea is saying to Israel, you're worse than that. You're worse than Gibeah. Now, all the Israelites knew that story. And they're saying, what? Hmm. You know, when I read this, 
I don't point a finger at others. I look at myself and I think, you know what? My flesh is capable of some very serious crap. And so is yours. None of us are beyond doing evil. That's a fact. Now, I'm a child of God, and I believe my identity is as a, as a child of God. But being in this earth suit, I still have a flesh. Right? I take the name of Christian. I take the name of being a child of God. I believe that's my identity, and I want to live consistent with that identity. But I also know what I'm capable of. And when I read this, I don't want to get near it. I don't want to get near the fire. I want to get as far away as I can. And I want to live with all that I have and all that I am for my king. Listen to Romans 12.2 from J.B. Phillips. I like what he says. To paraphrase, do not let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Rather than following the dictates of our culture and doing what is right in our own eyes, we must be sure to live under the rule of our king, the Lord Jesus, and obey his word. End quote. That is the call of the hour for us today. My money, my sexual relations, my relationships, my possessions, my influence. God, you give me these things as a gift. How can I now use these for your honor, for your pleasure? If that means getting rid of stuff, giving stuff away, saying no to passions, I'll do whatever it is you ask. Because you're the boss, not me. That's what that looks like. Now again, it's not to say it's wrong to have sex. God loves that within marriage. Not to say it's wrong to have nice things. All right, Those can be used for the kingdom of God. The point is we filter it through a biblical worldview of Jesus as our king and we are subjects in the kingdom of God. Let's pray.